following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about animal tracking in corridors, how the animals, and we're going to learn about the ways and byways of foxes mink, otter, fisher, and black bear. My guest today is Nancy Riley. Nancy is an animal tracker with a master's in evolutionary ecology from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Rob. How are you? Very good. So I'm sitting here on the third floor in Harvard Square, and you're out there in, in Concord, Mass? Yes. And are you, are you by the river? I'm not by the river. I walk to it, but I'm not yeah. that close to it. I can't see it from my house. And um, so um, you're a tracker. And uh, I am. I understand that you got started by thinking about the, the core habitats of these animals. And, and, and um, I use the word corridor in the you know, introduction and stuff. Uh, tell mm-hmm. us about that. So... Um, I've always been very interested in ecology and um, really wanted to do something um, hands-on, real field ecology. And so I started looking into animal tracking. And I like to think of animal tracking as reading a story. It's um, not really a story written by, about, you know, a member of our species or in symbols that we're familiar with. But, um, you know, it's a story about all sorts of species and in symbols that you have to, you know, smell and feel and look at and interpret. And so that's what really drew me to animal tracking was that I could figure out what the animals were doing out there and I could really read their stories in the forest. And so I joined a group called um, Keeping Track. It's a national not-for-profit organization um, started by a woman named Sue Morse in Jericho, Vermont. And she trained a group of volunteers here in Concord to track animal species that were really sensitive to human habitation or disturbance, like developments or roads or logging. And so we came up with five species. We did add one in at the end um, that were the most, disturbed by those kinds of things. And um, we looked at their core habitats and then tried to determine where um, they would need corridors to travel from green space to green space. Because lots of towns are great at protecting green spaces, but 
um, animals need to leave those green spaces for, you know, breeding with other populations and avoiding inbreeding. Um, and and uh, so our group set out to look at these core habitats and then try to find some corridors to see where the animals could go. So the first part yes. was just setting up, setting up transects out in the woods and really, you know, trying to find the habitat that these species would be in. And, and as you said before, the species we chose were um, fisher, river otter, mink, porcupine, and gray fox. We did add in the black bear, but we never actually tracked a black bear. <laughs> they occasionally yeah. come through here, but we did not ever find signs of them. So, um, anyway. But you'll still so talk we, about we black bears on, a little later. Okay. Right. We'll leave them out. <laughs> so, okay. so, that's what, so those are the species that we we looked at, and um, we tracked them four times a year, never in the denning season, and never with any attempt to see the animal. We would try to backtrack them, and we just recorded presence and absence. We didn't try to calculate numbers right. or anything like that, but just so we could tell who was out there, um, you know, and if a new species came in or if one of our species disappeared, we would know there was some sort of problem with the, the habitat. Um, so I can tell you... Well, don't you get a sense of numbers just being out there? Like. I mean, just seeing the number of tracks, don't you get a sense of, of numbers of animals when you're out walking, looking at their you footprints do, and yeah. stuff? Yeah, so you do get a sense for it. For instance, we were very surprised to see how many fisher are out there. Um, yeah. A lot more, yeah, a lot more than we thought. Although fisher tracks are meandering, they don't go in a straight line, and so sometimes, you know, you think you're tracking two fisher and you're really tracking one. Um, but there are a lot of fisher um, in Concord. <laughs> That's and, funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you, you'd come across some fisher tracks in one place, and then you come across some somewhere that you think is a new cat, but it's probably the same one just zigzagging around. Exactly. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> they, they, kind of, they, yeah. they hunt on the move, and their their bodies are built for you know getting prey out of holes, and so they're looking at holes in the ground, and they're up in trees, and they're all over the place. And uh, it's not like a fox that has you know a very straight line, and you can, you can tell which fox you're tracking. So that yeah, the, the foxes tend to beeline to things. Yes, yes. And, and also, they, you know, they can kind of wait and stalk things and, and really try to ambush their prey, whereas a fisher doesn't do that. It just hunts it right down. So yeah, it's a, it's it's a different in. kind of a, yeah, different kind of a, different kind of a tracking pattern completely. Um. And so, so most people don't know what a fisher is. I mean, it, yeah, it tells so, what it's, how do you, how, how do you know that critter in front of you is a fisher? And, uh, and then, yeah. you know, how do you know the tracks apart or something? Well, what's a fisher? So first of all, a fisher is not a cat. <laughs> it, a lot of people call it a fisher cat. It has, it's known by a lot of different names and that's kind of one of them, but it's a weasel. Um, it's a really pretty large weasel. The males weigh about, I don't know, eight and a half pounds. Um, and it is crepuscular, and that means it hunts at dawn and at dusk. And it's very territorial, and it's also, it tries to avoid humans whenever possible. Um, and it needs really dense forest with about 80% coverage uh, to be able to have, 
you know, its habitat, you know, the food it needs, the water, the shelter, um, and the denning sites. So, um, you know, protecting the land for for these animals, and they have big territories, um, is important. And, And during the, you know, the 18th century, when New Englanders kind of cleared a lot of land for agriculture, the porcupine disappeared, the fisher disappeared, and the gray fox disappeared. But now that forests have come back, um, we're seeing these animals again, which is really great. Yeah, it's surprising that Concord would have a lot of fishers because you said they need a lot of forests and there's a lot of houses in Concord. But there are, but Concord is really good about preserving green spaces. And we also have... um, the Harvard Forest, Estabrook Woods, which is like a thousand acres of mm. um, pretty undisturbed woodland, uh, which is it's just it's, it's great habitat for uh, quite a few of our our core species um, that we're looking at. So, well, you mentioned two two animals that came back with the forest, being the um, fisher and the porcupine. Is there yeah. any relation between those two? Or? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Yes, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of leading you on here. <laughs> yeah, there's there's quite an intricate relationship between Fisher and porcupine. Fisher is one of the only animals that actually selects porcupine as their prey. Um, and Fisher, you know, have these long bodies and short legs. They're great at climbing trees and getting into holes. And porcupine are, you know, they den in holes and crevices and. Um, Fisher love porcupine, and they can chase them off the end of a branch you know, in a hemlock, and a fisher will run right up, chase it off the hemlock. When it hits the ground, um, it's stunned, and then the fisher turns the porcupine over and eats it from the abdomen in. Um, from a belly so, side. Yes, yes. And so they are quite connected when the... When the porcupine disappeared, the fisher disappeared, and vice versa. So both of them are back. We have a great um, denning colony of porcupine here in Esterbrook Woods, um, and their, their den is about, gosh, 35 feet up in a huge pine. And um, you can see where, you know, the, the porcupine have climbed the tree to get up there, and um, they also use these kind of the same trail every day. They, they, you know, go to the same places to get food. And so they have these things called runs where in the snow you can just watch exactly where the porcupine have, have gone. Um, so they're pretty easy to, uh, to track out there. And they don't... So they retrace their steps. They go back and forth on the same pathway. Ab- absolutely. And the fisher know this. <laughs> so... Uh, well, I you know, found walking it, around in the woods that you'd know where the porcupine was because it'd be this huge pile of stuff at the base of a tree. Yes, that too. Uh, they um, they seem never to clean up their scat from even their denning sites. Um, they people have one that wasn't for insulation or some reason. I don't know if they really know the answer to it. But outside of a, a denning site, you know, at the base of a tree where they're denning, there's tons of porcupine scat, and um, there's one area in Esterbrook Woods where there's a um, hemlock forest, and on the ground there, you can 
reliably find porcupine quills and scat and nipped twigs. And um, one day we were tracking out there. We were kind of new trackers and so you get a little focused on what's on the ground and taking pictures and measuring and everything. And someone looked up and there was the porcupine napping in the tree right above our heads. Yes. So, well, that's the thing is I never think of looking up when I'm walking through the forest, but right, I quickly right. learned that where there's a pile of scats, that's where you look up, you know. Exactly. So, yeah, it's happened several times. Also, with Fisher, um, you know, they will cache food that they're not eating right away. And yes. one day we were, we thought we tracked the Fisher to a big tree and noticed something way up high on the tree. And I climbed to the tree and it was a rabbit leg. And it was still warm. The fisher was storing it there for oh. another time. But you just missed seeing the fisher by a matter we of did, hours. <laughs> we did just miss seeing the fisher. But they'll eat what they can and cache the rest. Um, there was one time we were um, trekking a fisher, and it was in an open area, which is a little unusual for a fisher, um, but easy to see the, the tracks. It was deep snow, and all of a sudden the tracks, ended, and it seemed like the fisher had simply, you know, levitated away. Yeah. And we were with, we were with a, a more experienced tracker, and he kind of let us puzzle this out for a while, and we couldn't come up with what had happened. And he walked into the middle of this patch of snow that looked pristine. It did not look like it had been disturbed at all. Right at the end of the fisher, where the fisher tracks stopped, and he started to dig and he, of course, dug out um, a frozen rabbit leg where the fisher had hidden it for a later date. So, um, very interesting. Oh, my gosh. And then, and then he'd retrace yep, his and, steps or something. Well, no, then he continued on, but he had smoothed out a huge area of snow so that we could not tell that he'd gone in there and buried oh. it. And then he'd gone on. It was just amazing. So... They're very smart. Fishers are kind of maligned. People people don't like them. They're afraid of them. Um, They think they're vicious. And um, I just think of the fisher as like the smartest kid in the class. He came prepared. His homework was done. (laughs) He knew all the answers. (laughs) Fishers are just really, really good at what they do. And, um, you know, occasionally they'll get a house cat because the cat will, you know, climb a tree. And that's what they're good at. Um, but, you know, they're pretty, pretty leery of people and, and pretty much, you know, they're active when we're not. So um, I really like the fisher. Well, that's right. You said they were active at dawn and dusk when visibility yeah. is the worst, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. they can sneak around and stuff. Exactly. And so that's, that's one of the animals you've you're yeah. been studying. And then uh, you were saying the mink was another one. And how do you tell a mink from a fisher? So a mink is like a tiny fisher. It's um, probably the size, it's actually smaller than a house cat. Um, And you're going to find mink always near water. They're semi-aquatic weasels. And so they'll be by a stream, a swamp, a marsh, anything like that. And they're, they're tiny, they're hard, it's, they're hard to see. They're very, very nervous. So they, um, you know, look around. If they see anything, they duck into a little hole. Um, but they're just an adorable little animal. We had um, 
the woman who taught us to track had this little, she had these little mnemonics to help us remember uh, what, you know, how to identify a track. And her track for the mink was Minkle, Minkle, Little Star. And that's exactly what a mink track looks like. It looks like a tiny, delicate star. Um, and they, oh, no kidding. And so all, its toes are like points to a star? They do. Between the, the nails register in a mink print. and oh, nails um, register. Yep, and their their little paws can be splayed, and they yeah. do. They look like little stars, and so it's an easy thing to remember. And they eat, you know, fish and crayfish and sometimes rabbits and squirrels. They eat a whole lot of things. They also eat waterfowl eggs, uh, sometimes can be a problem. But we also have a really healthy population of mink here. I, I see them on my walks almost every day. Not see them, but see signs of them. Well, you're fortunate. In Scotland, they were brought over there for fur, and they got wild. So now they're all upset uh-huh. about the mink in the highlands there. But uh, yeah. at least they belong here. And for some reason, they managed to keep their population in check, because I don't think anyone takes a mink out. Interesting. But, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, they really were hunted almost out here um, for their fur. Right, but nowadays... They, they're not, well, I guess they're doing very well, so that's, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are uh, here in Congress. And then um, you also have the, the smaller one, the ermine, or the, what is it, the long tail? Um, yeah, so the long tail weasel, yeah. We, my group didn't yeah. track that one, but that, I have seen No, that but for people who don't North, know the area, it's like, what? Yeah, I've seen that at the, North, at the old North Bridge, um, and it's always surprising to come across. One of those. It's just very striking. Yes. How is it striking? Well, it's all white in the winter time, and so it's. Oh yeah. You just kind of do this double take, like, "What is that?" Um, and then it occurs to you, but yeah, they're they're here in Congress, and I've actually yeah, had some encounters with them, not in the winter, but tracking. As I say, we never try to see the animals, but. I was tracking something, and all of a sudden, a weasel came right out in front of me and just froze. And, of course, I froze. <laughs> right. I should try to reach into my backpack and get my camera or not, but I opted not to and just watched it until no, he you're wise. decided yeah. to move it on. Happens yeah. Fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and then the last species that we, we track is really interesting. It's absolutely Well, wait, favorite. before you it's, go to the last species, we're going to take a break. But sure. I, I oh, okay. just wanted to, to, to note that um, I've seen in the stone walls where you get chipmunks going yeah. in and out of the stone walls that you'll get yep. an ermine coming out, like, and it looks like, starts like a chipmunk, but his body goes twice as long or something He's coming going. out of the I know, the I know. Yeah, they the same do, kind of coloring. They do stuff. love stone walls, yes. Yeah. All right, so we're going to come back. We're talking to Nancy Riley, and we'll be right back after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hey, we're walking through the wilds of Concord. And we're learning about the natural history of, uh, what do we got, mink and uh, fisher, fishers and um, porcupine. And uh, Nancy Riley's with me. And Nancy, um, let's move on to another Mistella, the otter. Tell sure. us about the otters of Concord. So we have river otter in Concord, and they're another weasel. They're a big weasel. They are between 11 and 30 pounds, um, and they're really social. They're um, just a, a fun animal to track. They're often in groups, and when they have plenty of prey and space, they just appear to have a really easy life. Um, one of my fellow trackers used to say, when I come back, I'm going to be an otter. And <laughs> I understand why. They're just, they have very few natural enemies. They love to play and they take every opportunity that they have to play, and they 
do this thing called sliding, and they'll, whenever they can, whenever there's a, you know, a, a hill or even pond ice or snow on a hill, they will just slide and slide, and it's just <laughs> wonderful to see. Um, they make all sorts of noises, and they love being together. They are not territorial, um, but they are they are impacted by humans, and so that's why they're included in the in the species that we um, track. Um, yes. They have pretty poor eyesight, but they're great at smelling. Um, and during the day, they just you know they alternate between hunting and resting and playing, and they have a great time. And they eat you know uh, fish mainly. But we've also, um, in their scat, found that they eat crayfish and small um, rodents and even, in the spring, ducklings. We found some feathers in their scat. So. Oh, fledglings, young birds that are learning how to fly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. The little ducklings, they get them in the water. And, uh, and uh, so we've seen some evidence of that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they also leave um, these scent mounds, which um, they're, they're diff- beaver also leave scent mounds, but otters take um, dry material on the edge of a, you know, any kind of body of water, and they'll twist it or mound it up, and then they will you know, deposit scat there, mucus, other things. Um, and then they'll roll around in that area really close to it, so you can always tell where the otter have been because these um, scent mounds and roll sites are really easy to find. And they're often um, really close to beaver scent mounds. But you can tell the difference between the two because the beaver pull wet material out of the pond, and then they deposit um, castorium on their scent mounds. And um, you obviously wouldn't see fish scales or anything else because beaver are herbivores. But often, beaver scent mounds are right next to river otter scent mounds. So do, do otters have a, a scent gland like the castorium gland on the beaver? So it's not the same. I do believe they have scent glands. But yeah, um, so, people yeah. think that this mucus that they secrete on top of their scent mounds is yeah. um, perhaps um, the inner lining of their intestines, which they think has to be really thick so that when they um, you know, eat fish scales or um, fish bones that they don't um, puncture their intestines. So it's ah, not like, and it comes up with yeah, the scales so maybe and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should do the trick. Yeah. So, do the otters and then, like to... And then, and con- oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say um, that the otter is also a bounder, and it's um, like, like other <laughs> weasels, but it also doesn't just stay near the water. It can travel really long distances over land. So, mm. um, that's interesting. It was not what I had thought before I became a tracker. Yeah, that, but they have a destination in mind. They're not going to be meandering oh, yeah. doing that. Oh, no, definitely. They're probably going to another body of water, but far away. Yeah, Lynn, Massachusetts is a very built-up community on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. they have a lot of houses, and right in the center of Lynn, 
is a little pond with a like 20 foot wide island, circular island with some grass in the middle. And sure enough, an otter somehow got into town and pulled out, hauled <laughs> out right there on the island. You know? <laughs> oh my God. And there were like, there were goldfish in the pond. So he was there for about yep. 36 hours and it took him how long to <laughs> clean out the goldfish. And then he was out of there and, uh, there was no corridor. He just was slinking through the back alleys of wind to get in and out. But, uh, Amazing. One Amazing. happy critter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. <laughs> they're big. Oh, my gosh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Really they're really big. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's marvelous. So um, in Concord, you tend to see them down by the rivers or um, yeah. Yeah. in the forest? Or, actually- yeah. Yeah, so both there's, well, Concord has a lot of um, wetland, obviously we have three rivers, we have ponds, um, and the otter are pretty much all over the place. Um, They're all along the Concord and Sudbury Rivers, the Assabet River, they're out at Mink Pond in Estabrook Woods, Um, they're just all over the place, and they're a delight to see. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I yeah. forgot the little pond in the Estherbrook Woods. I thought the woods were a big wood, but no, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Concord has a lot of wetlands, which is fabulous for a variety of species, especially the otter and the mink who really depend on that. Right. Well, Great Meadows is a, a national wildlife yeah. refuge, I think, or something. Yep. So it's, it's a national treasure for... Um, it, um, mm-hmm. the, the habitat of otter and, and all those waiting birds and everything else there. Right, right. Yeah, the otter come up and there's a little roll site right off of the causeway at um, Great Meadow. And if you yes. cross the causeway and walk down to the river, just a little bit further, um, you can see where they come out of the water and roll and socialize. It's really nice. Oh, that's so great. You can dependably yeah. see their sites and stuff. Because yes. that's the wonder of what you do is that you're in the presence of these animals, you know. You may not see mm-hmm. them, but you're, you're seeing their tracks and their scats and their chewings and musings and playfulness yep. stuff. Yep, yep. It's really, it's really wonderful. At one time I was kayaking down the Concord River and uh, I heard a splash and then I heard another splash. Something had jumped out of a tree and it was two otter. And they... Huh. Um, they just kind of were curious, and they didn't swim close to me, but they kept just watching me in the kayak for the longest time. They didn't try to go away or get onto the land. They were just really interested. Or else you were in the way of where they wanted to play next. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you were blocking their access to the rope swing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about another animal, the gray fox. Yeah, so this is my favorite animal to track. Um, And I actually got to see a family of gray fox um, den and and, um, have kits. So um, they're absolutely one of my favorite animals. So the gray fox also was kind of had to leave the New England area during the um, agricultural time because um, they are an arboreal fox. They are the only American canid that can climb trees. And so they den in hollow trees. They can jump from branch to branch. They're small. They're like 7 to 15 pounds. Um, Mm. And they are just a fascinating animal. Um, And 
the way you can tell the difference between a gray fox and a red fox is that the red fox has a white-tipped tail and the gray fox has a black-tipped tail. And then the red fox has the... It's an easy way to pick them out. And then the red fox has what people call black stockings. The fur on its legs is black, and the gray fox doesn't have that. So um, once you learn those things, it's easy to tell the difference. But until you know that, it's a bit of a challenge. Because they tend to be the same size, so they tend to cut the same kind of profile, right? Yeah. Yep, exactly. So you have to have good light to tell tell them apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, but you can tell by where you're seeing them, right, and how they're behaving somewhat. Exactly. They, you know, they climb trees. They're in dense forests. Um, mostly you're not going to see them in people's yards. Like the, the red fox is pretty habituated towards humans. Um, the gray fox is much more wary. Um, although my neighbor, years ago my neighbor said, you know, I've got these fox denning in my yard and, I thought, oh, they're probably red. So we went out there and <clears throat> sat there for many hours watching. And he had gray fox denning in his, he has a very wooded backyard. Um, wow. Yeah, and they had three kits that year. And we got to watch them. Um, we set up remote cameras and um, just had a delightful time because it's, it's hard to see gray fox. So yes. it's really special. Yeah, they never came back again. <laughs> it might have been too much for them. But too much that fame one, and celebrityness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one um, and, spring it was really a treat. Were they denning in the ground like Red Fox or up in a tree? Like Yeah, they they were. So he had a woodshed in his back yard, right, you know, at the edge of the yeah. forest and it had there had been um a woodchuck den there. And often animals do that. They just expand on woodchuck dens. Uh, so they lived underneath um, this little, you know, shed in his backyard. But the the really interesting thing about um, gray fox that I just have to tell you is that um, when you look at their tracks, they're confusing because they their front prints look like a cat. Like they're round. They've got um, a whole different shape. They just they just feel like they're a cat track. But their hmm. rear tracks look canid. You know, they're that oblong, tightly compacted um, foot. And so if you're tracking, you, you know, you're thinking, well, gosh, there's a cat and there's a dog. And it's very hard to figure out. But there's one really neat trick that you can do to differentiate. And you can try to draw a line between two of the toes in a diagonal line that goes through the track and draw a line through the other toe going diagonally the other way. And if those lines don't intersect the pad in the middle, the palm pad, um, then it's a canid. And it holds true for the gray fox. So it's just, it's a neat thing to track. It just takes, you know, it's just a very interesting um, track that they make. And I just love that. And their, their front paws are like that because they have to jump down from trees. So they need that very right. flexible cat-like um, paw for landing. So fascinating. And so that the cat, when you draw the line with the cats, they wouldn't cross at the paw. They would exactly. If you yeah. try to do the same thing with a cat, you will intersect their palm pad, and um, uh. that's how you know you've got. Um, that's how you know you've got a feline. Is that 
um, you can make a C around the pad, um, but you cannot make an X through it. And the way to remember that, I don't know if I told you this or not, but that making that X um, is that um, there's a nice little mnemonic and it, it goes like this, that X marks the spot and spots a dog. So if you can make that X <laughs> without intersecting the palm pad, you've got some type of dog. Right. Just don't tell the fox you're calling him a dog. <laughs> no. <laughs> that would not be nice. But And yeah. then you can tell from a dog because the dog is sloppier and doesn't keep its feet so much in the yeah. line. It, this is really interesting. Um, people send me photographs all the time. You know, there's a really big coyote in my backyard or I was walking on the beach and, you know, should I get a stick? There was a coyote. And invariably... It's a domestic dog track. And I understand how people could make this confusion because a dog track is, is big and it's splayed and its nails are dense and they show with every step, um, mostly because they, you know, their nails get clipped and they walk on sidewalks or they're in your house on a hard surface and they don't have to hunt for their food. So... Um, a wild canid, like a coyote or a fox, they have to hunt, and they really are on the verge of starvation at all times. And so they can't waste a single bit of energy. They walk in a straight line. Their nails are super sharp, and they only register, like, out a little bit in front of the toes as two tiny little, they look like little holes in yeah. front of the track. You don't see all of the all of the, all the nails in the nails. a wild canid. And they're much more delicate looking than the domestic dog. So the, the dog looks like it's the fiercer animal when you're out tracking, but um, it's, it's really um, the delicate print of the coyote and the, the two foxes um, are the wild animals. So it's always interesting. People are sure they've found, even some people have thought they found a wolf, and so, <laughs> just a really big dog. Yeah, no, you can, you can tell right away looking at the tracks that yeah. this, yeah. Is, and the this pattern, is a sloppy too, animal that's carefree and yeah. not worried about its next meal and doesn't exactly. have to conserve every ounce of energy as it moves through yep. the landscape. Yep. They go off the trail, they don't walk in straight lines, they dig for silly things, um, so yeah, you can tell it pretty easily. Yeah. Nancy, we're going to take another short break, and then I'll be right back after this break. Okay. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Nancy Riley who's in Concord, Massachusetts, and she's been regaling us with animal tales of porcupines and um, gray foxes. And, and this is really interesting, Nancy, what you've been saying. So how can people um, get in touch with you if they have questions or, um, yeah. Yeah, so they can email me um, at Nancy Riley, and it's spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y, the numeral two at Gmail, and I'm always happy to talk about tracking. Well, I'm sure people are going to be lining up because um, yeah. you know you go out for a, a walk and, and you want to know what you're talking about, and suddenly yeah. there are these prints in the ground, and um, you right. know if you if you if you know something, you talk about it. If you don't, you say, "Oh, let's go look at that apple tree or something." <laughs> but <laughs> I guess you can't turn your attention away from tracks. But um, yeah. yes, thank you. So. We, we've kind of gone through the, the gambit um, of, of animals that, that you're specifically interested in. You were saying that there was the, um, the fisher, the mink, the otter, gray fox, and the black bear. Um, and, but and porcupine. You, you took it off. Oh, and what? Oh, and porcupine, right. Yeah. Um, so, um, so what's the black bear situation? So we don't have a breeding population of black bear and conquered. We added them to our list because there are occasional sightings of black bear that come into Concord 
um, and usually it's a juvenile male who's dispersing from its you know, parental territory, and um, they either get removed or move on. So my yeah. group actually never, we've never tracked a black bear here. We know that there have been sightings, but when we've gone out to look, we just have not um, found evidence of that, but we know it exists. Well, tracking back the black bear may not be something you want to recommend to people to do. <laughs> yes, I would not recommend it. Um, <laughs> no, maybe those tracks you want to take the other direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should backtrack. <laughs> yeah, tell us about the fine art of backtracking. So we try to be very respectful of the animals that we track. And we try to backtrack them at all times. We don't want to see them or run into them or disturb them in any way. Um, so a couple things we do, we backtrack. So you look at the direction that the tracks are going and you go the opposite way. Um, and we don't go out there at sensitive times, like when they're denning, um, like now. Um, mm. and, you know, starting in about April, you, you really want to leave them alone and, and let them have that. Um, that time because they're they're hunting constantly. They've got to get that food into their offspring, and you really don't want to disturb them. Well, that's smart. Yeah. And yeah. then, are there coyotes around? Oh my gosh! Yes, <laughs> we have a lot of coyotes, um, and people are you know kind of like the fisher. People are very frightened about the coyotes, and. Um, also, like the fisher, they were really almost, you know, kind of extinct in, the, in this regional extinction, I guess you'd call it, um, when the area was deforested. And now they have come back, but they are not that small little coyote that used to be here. Um, they've interbred with a wolf, and so some of the DNA studies have shown that they have a lot of wolf DNA. So they're a much bigger um, coyote, and they um, have actually started packing up like wolves and taking down much bigger prey, like deer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do have a, a big population of coyotes in Concord. So it's not, not something that my group tracks uh, because they also aren't really disturbed by human presence that much. They will, you know, right. they're very adaptable and they survive in cities and, you know, other urban areas, suburban areas. Like the red fox. Yes, exactly. And so the, the big thing in, in Concord, for those of us who live outside of Concord, is Route 2. It comes, oh, yeah. swinging down, it comes screaming down out of, you know, Cambridge and Arlington and down the hills and into, um, and, and right before Concord, it does a, a severe swing to the left. It curves around, mm-hmm. and there always yep. used to be a stoplight there, and people would, you know, grumble about, you know, what's this going on? There's a right-angle turn in the highway and stuff. And, and uh, so after gazillions of dollars and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's years. remarkable. I drove it the other day, and, and it's, it's all this gracious curve now. Um, yeah. But that means the traffic doesn't slow down. So it's going to lead to, um, you know, for animals crossing, it just got a whole lot worse. And so how did they address right. that situation? Well, and in addition to that, they put up Jersey barriers. 
um, to, you know, prevent accidents. And, the, you know, the daily volume of Route 2 is about 50,000 cars, and that's a lot. Um, yes. So, so one of the things that my tracking group did, I think we're most proud of this, is that we tracked along Route 2 one winter and kind of submitted our data to um, not only natural resources in Concord, but mass highways. And um, they took that data and, you know, looked at where large animals were crossing and smaller animals and then finally, you know, reptiles and amphibians over by the river. And Mm. it, it was really a great outcome because they installed four wildlife crossing structures and it's they're kind of all within about <coughs> excuse me a 2.5 mile segment of route 2 in Concord and um what two of them are big they're 6 feet by 9 feet and that's for the large animals and then there's a 5 foot by 8 and then there's the 3 by 5 culvert near the river for the you know smaller things like snakes and turtles and salamanders. Um, But we walked along Route 2 and um, gave some great information to help. You can think of it as a corridor because um, once they put up those Jersey barriers, I mean, it wasn't great before the Jersey barriers, but then afterwards, if an animal is going to try to cross Route 2, you know, it would cross a couple lanes, barrier and then run alongside it until it got killed um, yes. or went back. And so it really prevented animals from leaving their parental territory and uh, going, you know, and to avoid inbreeding, going to another green space. So um, the hope was yeah, that that's the animals... For those people who haven't been in the area, it's, you know, those barriers you're talking about are right in the middle of the road. So the animal yeah, gets yeah. halfway across... And then it can't continue across, like you said. So it ends up yeah. lumping along beside this, right. where all the traffic is only like two and a half feet from the, the Jersey barrier, and it's green yeah. by at yeah. 55 miles an hour. And you, I, we haven't mentioned the big animal, deer. I mean, deer is the yeah. driver's nightmare and stuff. Yeah, uh, so exactly. Yeah. The deer are, are now that the deer are using the underpass, right? They are. So um, in these underpasses, um, we put, um, well, actually Mass Highway put um, some sand substrate, and in some of them we put um, remote cameras to see mm. were the animal, you know, to see if the animals were actually using these. And um, indeed they are. And our, four of our species are using them, the gray fox, otter, mink, and fisher. And the porcupine we didn't expect to because it doesn't really go very far from its um, territory, right? Um, but there are so many animals out there using these underpasses, white-tailed deer and raccoons and cottontails and turkeys and red fox. I don't know if they've documented a gray fox, um, but otter. Beaver. Beaver, yes, and coyotes. Um, they're all using them. And then in the smaller... Um, culvert, the 3 by 5 they've documented garter snakes and frogs. They didn't tell me what species of frogs were there. And red-backed salamanders <laughs> and mice and voles and all sorts of things are using these underpasses. Um, and the other thing that uses the underpasses are humans. So um, 
tracking groups and others were hoping that humans would not use the underpasses, but they've figured out that <laughs> about 100 humans per year go through these underpasses. Um, so they put up some signs just asking people to be respectful and not, not use yeah. them. But um, it's pretty tempting if you can just go under Route 2 rather than... Sure, as long as not being occupied by wild animals. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that, Look that before you enter, of, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but some of the photos, you can actually see the photos up on the Sudbury Valley Trustees website. Um, if you type in underpasses in their search bar, uh, you can see the remote camera photos and the well, substrate with the tracks in it. And um, it's really wonderful to see. Bravo. Nancy, this yeah. is really great what you what you've done yeah. and and uh, and so um, what should people take away from this? Ugh, get out there um, and put in your dirt time. Take a well. First of all, class. you were telling us that animals need space. You know, they need corridors to be able to. Animals must move around, so they, we have to yep, make way for them, to. right? And right, yeah, right. Yeah, just, and, um, you know, be active in your community and and be aware that it's great to protect green spaces, but animals really need corridors to get from space to space. Um, and the corridors can really moderate some of the worst effects of habitat fragmentation. Um, you know, the development can cause animals to lose their natural habitat and the ability to move from location to location. So corridors are super important for these guys. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It can be as simple as a pathway under, under a right. highway or something. Yes, It doesn't exactly. have to be a big green space in itself. It just needs to be... No. Um, no, these are poured concrete the little culvert, you know, and um, yeah. they work just fine. Well, thank you. Well, thank um, you. This has been really interesting, and I invite everyone to... Uh, when you're driving, keep, well, no, don't drive. Get out in the woods. Go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look for wildlife. Look when around. Tracking, yeah. I, yeah. Well, I've done a bit of tracking, and I end up seeing more wildlife from the car. But, you, but what <laughs> the important thing is is how you learn about the animal. You know, seeing an animal in the headlights, you know, dazed is, is thrilling. But it's not the same as getting to know the the raucous, joyous, you know, tumbling of the otters you were talking about yeah. or the yeah. staggering, um, surprising path of the fisher cat going every which way with its big splayed feet and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or the, the thrill of... Or the bee lining. Yeah, go ahead. Right, no, the thrill of finding um, a gray fox track. That's really yeah. exciting. I know. I, I think I've always mistaken it for a red fox because you just mm-hmm. get used to seeing red fox everywhere. And, right, uh, right, and then those are the ones we see. You know, you tend to think it's the most common thing and stuff, and so you don't consider that. Right. Yeah, who knew that fishers would be around here today? This is just phenomenal. I know. Um, yep, yep, it's really wonderful. And, and I hope people get educated about them. I hope they're not as maligned as um, they've kind of Well, this is what you're, you're doing, this, Nancy. You're helping us understand by, you know, introducing us, taking us by the hand and leading us over to a track and saying, <laughs> look at this, you know. That's what we need to understand the, the yeah. wild habits of fishers and these other animals. Nancy, we're out of time, yeah. but I want to thank you very much for um, taking this time with us. Well, thank you for having me. And for all your listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. And until then, 
Please take care of yourself and then try to take care of the rest of the planet while you're at it. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.